tell me, why is it that you are not a Muslim? Why is it that you are not a Mormon? Why is it that you are not a humanist? Why is it that you follow Peter's message as opposed to any other message? That's what we're looking at this evening. Why does what Peter is saying here in this seemingly unimportant first century letter hold more weight and more meaning and more truth than any other message that will ever exist? It's a very valid question. Maybe you've been asked that. Perhaps you've never even thought about it before. Why is it that you trust what Peter is saying here? And if you don't, why should you? Last time we looked at verses 12 to 15, where Peter commits himself to his readers saying, I'm always going to remind you of this message of Jesus. And now he begins verse 16 with, For, or because, this message is the one trustworthy, one light-giving and one divine truth that you will ever hear. Why does Peter feel the need to do that? Because there are blind teachers spreading a false message that Peter is fighting to defend them against at all costs. And he spends the whole of chapter 2 addressing those teachers head-on. But before he shines a light on all of those errors and sins of these false teachers, he first spends time showing them the light because he wants them to fully hope in Christ's message. So I wonder, have you ever doubted this book? Have you ever thought to yourself, can I really trust what this book is saying to me? Can I really be sure that this is the only message that will give me true life? Can this really be from God or did men just make it up? Maybe you've thought that. Tonight we'll see three things from this passage that will bolster your confidence in this book. We'll see that the message of the Bible and the message of Christ is the one trustworthy message the one light-giving message and the one divine message. Firstly, from verses 16 to 18, we see that this is the one trustworthy message. Verse 16, For we did not follow cunningly devised fables when we made known to you the power and coming of our Lord Jesus Christ, but were eyewitnesses of his majesty. There's the classic Aesop's fable, the lion and the old fox, about an old lion whose teeth and claws have worn so much that it's not as easy for him to get food as it once was in his younger days. So he sits up in his cave and he comes up with a cleverly devised story. He takes careful care to go around to all his neighbours and let them know that he is terribly sick. And then he sits up in his cave and he waits for visitors to come. 
And when they come to him to offer his sympathy, he eats them one by one. It's only when a clever fox notices that footprints go up to the cave but don't come out when the animals notice that something's not right. It's a cunningly devised fable. It's a cleverly thought up tale that this lion has come up with, designed to trick and play on the emotions and lead astray. Your Christianity is like that, isn't it? Is this message trustworthy? Peter knows that he has not been duped. This message that he follows and preaches isn't a cunningly devised trap to lure in unsuspecting believers, but rather Peter saw this Jesus whom he speaks of. And he was one of many who saw this Jesus. He looked upon his glory and majesty as an eyewitness to everything he preaches. This isn't a wishy-washy fable. This is witnessed fact. In verse 17, he tells us one of the things he saw that authenticates everything he is saying. Verse 17, for Jesus received from God the Father honour and glory when such a voice came to him from the excellent glory. This is my beloved son in whom I am well pleased. And we heard this voice which came from heaven when we were with him on the holy mountain. What is this event that Peter's describing here? Well, it's the event we find in Matthew, Mark and Luke's accounts where Peter took Jesus, sorry, Jesus took Peter, James and John up on a mountain. So turn to your Bibles, look at Matthew 17, verses 1 to 9. Here we find this account that Matthew's written of this event that Peter speaks about. What is this holy mountain? What is this voice from heaven? Matthew 17, verses 1 to 9. Now, after six days, Jesus took Peter, James and John, his brother, and led them up on a high mountain by themselves. And he was transfigured before them. His face shone like the sun and his clothes became as white as the light. And behold, Moses and Elijah appeared to them, talking with him. Then Peter answered and said to Jesus, Lord, it is good for us to be here. If you wish, let us make here three tabernacles, one for you, one for Moses, one for Elijah. While he was still speaking, behold, a bright cloud overshadowed them and suddenly a voice came out of the cloud saying, this is my beloved son in whom I am well pleased. Hear him. And when the disciples heard it, they fell on their faces and were greatly afraid. But Jesus came and touched them and said, Arise, do not be afraid. When they had lifted up their eyes, they saw no one but Jesus only. Now as they came down from the mountain, Jesus commanded them, saying, Tell the vision to no one until the Son of Man 
is risen from the dead. Do you understand the weight of what just happened there? Arguably, one of the most significant events in all of history just happened there. Not, not just most significant event in the Bible, in the whole of history. Picture this, you're Peter, you're a Jew, an Israelite. For thousands of years, the God of your people has provided for and protected your forefathers. He's delivered them out of captivity. He's torn down nations who would oppose them. He's shown up those nations' idols to be powerless. He's been patient and faithful when your forefathers have turned and sinned against him. He's kept every promise to them he's ever made. He's shown himself throughout history to be the one trustworthy, one light-giving, one divine God. There is no other. And you know how he gave his law to Moses, written on stone tablets which are still laid in the Ark of the Covenant in Jerusalem about 80 miles that way. And you know of how he gave his words through prophets like Elijah giving promises of future blessing and restoration still recorded in scrolls throughout synagogues in the land. But for the last couple of hundred years, God has been silent. He hasn't spoken to anyone like he used to do in what many may have considered the golden age of your people. But then you meet this man, your friend, and He's been confounding the wisest teachers in the land since he was a boy. He's spoken greater wisdom than you can ever understand. He saved your life by stopping a whole storm just with his words. He's created from nothing food that you've eaten. He's cast out demons. He's made sick people, including your mother-in-law, well. He's given you the power to cast out demons and make sick people well. He's brought back the dead. He's been pronouncing people's sins to be forgiven. And he's claimed, I did not come to destroy the law or the prophets, but to fulfill them. And then he takes you up a mountain and he begins to shine. Not, not just glow, he's shining like the sun. And then the actual Moses and the actual Elijah appear and start speaking to your friend. And a shining cloud suddenly covers everything and you hear this voice from God, a voice that spoke to Abraham, to Jacob, to Joshua, to David, now speaks to you and says, your friend is my beloved son. I'm well, well pleased with him. Hear him. And you become terrified and you fall to the ground and while your eyes are blinded from this light of the cloud that is shining out of this man and your ears are still ringing with the most incredible words that you've ever heard, you then feel a hand on your shoulder and another voice that says, get up Peter, it's okay, there's no need to be afraid. You look up and there, looking into your eyes is your friend, Jesus. All the commotion is gone. It's just him. 
Moses representing the law of God with all its demands on your life that pins you to the wall for all of your sin, he disappears and it's just Jesus alone standing in his place. Why? Because Jesus has fulfilled everything that the law demanded him to be and he kept every command perfectly. Elijah, representing the prophets of God with all their prophecies and promises that one day God's people will be restored and blessed and given new hearts, he disappears and now Jesus is standing in his place. Why? Because Jesus has fulfilled everything the prophecies demanded him to be and he met each and every one of them perfectly. And after this voice of God has declared, this one man you see before you is my son, the fulfillment of my law, the fulfillment of my prophecies, and I'm well pleased with him, hear him. What does Jesus say? The son of man will rise from the dead. And in doing so, he will secure for you and purchase for you the redemption that has long been awaited for since the garden. And all that fear you felt is taken away by Jesus. The Old Testament, the Old Covenant, all the law and the prophets are fulfilled in Jesus. And so, Peter says, we have the prophetic word confirmed. Cunningly devised fable? No. Gloriously revealed fact. The real historical Jesus is the culmination of this unified storyline of history that God has perfectly laid into place since the beginning of the world. There's no other message like this. There's no other message that can compare with this. Allow me to illustrate. The fourth highest grossing film of all time is Star Wars The Force Awakens. Now, you may be a Star Wars fan or you may not give a jot or tittle about Star Wars, but I will explain. The main saga is made up of nine different stories, nine different films. The most recent trilogy concluded last December. Now, film number one, released in 2015, The Force Awakens, directed and co-written by a man named J.J. Abrams. Now, he sets up the main character, Rey, who's from the back end of nowhere, whose parents were killed when she was a child and she's desperately trying to find who they really were. The villainous organization, the First Order, arrives on the scene, but they're being led by a mysterious, shadowy, evil mastermind who you never really see. He's pulling all the strings from the background. And the film ends on a literal cliffhanger with the long-awaited triumphal entrance of the series' original hero, Luke Skywalker. But then, the second film comes along. Different writer, Rian Johnson. What does he decide to do with his part of the story? 
Does he solve the mystery of Ray's parents? No. He reveals that they were just nobodies and she's been searching in vain all these years. Does the shadowy evil mastermind get a larger role? No. He appears for four minutes and then he's killed. Does Luke Skywalker swoop in and save the day? No. The man who was set up to be a hope-filled, dashing hero is now a depressed and angry hermit, and after using the Force for a bit, he dies too. So by the time of the third film, The Rise of Skywalker, with the original director and writer back, they have to steady the ship, pick up the pieces to get the storyline back to what he presumably had originally intended it to be, because the last guy took it in his own direction. Not so with the Bible. There's no difference of opinion. There's no difference of direction. That particular trilogy has three parts written over, give or take, five years with seven authors, and it's full of differences of direction in the storyline. The Bible, 66 parts, written over a period of around 1,500 years, with over 40 authors, hardly of them ever met each other, and yet carries the same harmonious, unbroken storyline of God creating humanity, humanity rebelling against him in sin, and yet God promising and fulfilling the redemption of his people through the most well-attested event in all of ancient history, the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ, his son. What else can compare to this unshakable message of the Bible, which spans faultlessly and flawlessly and consistently through all of history? We'll look at this more in our third point, but who could piece all of this together but God himself? You can be confident that Jesus is the Christ. You can be at peace that he is the Saviour. This is the one trustworthy message since Jesus has fulfilled all prophecy. Second thing we see from verse 19 is that this is the one light-giving message. Verse 19 And so, we have the prophetic word confirmed, which you do well to heed as a light that shines in a dark place, until the day dawns and the morning star rises in your hearts. You do well to heed, to listen, to give time to this message. Why? Because it's a light that shines in a dark place. Everything else that you could find is darkness. No matter what it promises, no matter how appealing it is, no matter how logical it seems, it is darkness. Peter no doubt has in his mind the false message that these teachers are bringing who we see in chapter 2 who deny that Jesus is Lord. But Peter's drawing an incredibly clear distinction. There are right things to believe. There are wrong things to believe. There is truth 
there are lies. There is light. There is darkness. A lot of people think today all messages, all religions are the same. It's like picking a car out of a showroom. They all pretty much do the same thing for you. It's just, in the end, simply a choice of whatever takes you fancy. Whatever suits you the best is the one you go for. They're all as valid as each other. But there's no consequence there. The reality is that Christianity is not one car in a whole showroom. It's the only car in a scrapyard. Every man-made religion is powerless because they try and make us good enough for God. But Christ, we need him to make us right with God himself when it's an impossible task for us alone. Here's another one you'll hear people say all the time. All religions just worship the same God, just in different ways. They'll use the old Indian philosophical parable of the blind men and an elephant. There are loads of different blind men feeling a different part of an elephant. One feels a big trunk and feels this is what God must be like. Another's feeling a tusk. This is what God must be like. Another has the tail. This is what God is like. Another has the back. This is what God is like. Jesus wasn't simply another blind man trying to understand God. He is the one who opens the eyes of the blind so we can see God. Some will say that religions are just the different paths up the same mountain. If that's the case, Jesus is the mountain rescue who takes us off our own efforts from trying to get to God and all we do is trust him as he carries us. See, when we hear all these arguments, we don't have to guess or worry whether they're right or not because God has told us himself they're wrong. In the Bible, he makes it clear to us that Jesus is the way. Jesus is the truth. He alone is the life. No one can ever even hope to come to the Father except through faith in him. Long before Islam, long before Hinduism, Buddhism, Mormonism, Jehovah's Witnesses, Confucianism, Sikhism, Zoroastrianism, before any of them or any others you could name were thought up by men, the one true God created the universe, revealed himself to humanity through the Bible, telling us the only way to be forgiven for our sin and to be restored to him is through his son, Jesus Christ. And think for a minute, a minute on the foundations of some of these religions. Think of Islam and the Quran. Allah spoke to Muhammad and Muhammad wrote it all down. To trust the Quran and therefore Islam, you have to trust the testimony of one man. Think of Mormonism and the Book of Mormon. An angel appeared to Joseph Smith and Joseph Smith wrote it all down. To trust 
the Book of Mormon, and therefore Mormonism, you have to trust the testimony of one man. Think of Buddhism and the Tripitaka, a collection of works that are pretty much the words of Buddha, their enlightened master. To trust the Tripitaka and therefore Buddhism, you have to trust the testimony of one man. Now think of Christianity in the Bible. The Holy Spirit of God moved in 40 different authors over a period of 1,500 years who all tell an essential part of one harmonious story. There's nothing that can even be compared to this message Peter gives. No matter what religion, no matter what belief system a person may hold to, no matter how well they keep it, every single person is sinful. And every single person can only be forgiven through faith in Jesus, what he did in dying on the cross to secure salvation. In a world full of religions, which are nothing more than man's failed attempts to get to God, there's only one bridge between heaven and earth that stands firm, and that's the one God set up himself. There is one God and one mediator between God and men, the man Christ Jesus. We do not believe the Bible because it is the thing that has convinced us best so far. We believe the Bible because there is that and no other. There is only one light and one light only. That is the message of Christ. And Peter says we must heed it because it's the only light there is. Picture yourself lost in a dark cave, stumbling about in the dark, lost and confused. What would you give for a flaming torch to be put in your hand to guide your way? What possessions that you might have would you lose so you could have this torch? You wouldn't set it down and start doing something else. You'd guard it and protect it and stoke it. You'd value that light more than you'd value any other thing. This book is your light. Will you value it? Will you treasure it? Do you keep a firm grip on it? Do you plant it deep in your heart when you read it? Would you find that flaming torch in the cave, stop for a minute, admire it and say, well, that's a lovely light, and then set on your way without picking it up? Why would you come here, hear God's word, read, preached, say, oh, that's a lovely sermon, and then continue on your way? This is the one light you have in this dark world. Is it close to you or is it far away? But though there is darkness now, Peter says, the day will dawn. So we have this imagery of darkness and light. And if there will be a day that is light, when the day will dawn that swallows up the darkness, which is the world, then what could that be? 
seems clear that it's the coming of Jesus. The day when everything dark will be brought into the light and done away with forever. And Peter says, the morning star will rise in your hearts. Jesus describes himself in Revelation as the bright and morning star. And on that day we will see him shining in his glory just as Peter saw him if we heed everything he said. His is the only light-giving message. Every other message that you will find will leave you hopelessly groping around in the dark and plunge you into an eternity of judgment for your self-reliance and self-trust. But you can be confident in this King of Grace, this kindness of God who even gave his life up for you and since you can hope fully in him you can hope fully in his word the only light giving word that there is and finally we see from verses 20 to 21 that this is the one divine message it's the one message that is truly from God and has his stamp on it. Verse 20, Peter says, Heed the message, knowing first that no prophecy of Scripture is of any private interpretation. For prophecy never came by the will of man, but holy men of God spoke as they were moved by the Holy Spirit. What does Peter mean here? No prophecy of scripture is of any private interpretation. Well, the Bible's prophecies are not private insights of the prophets themselves. They aren't simply offering up their own views, their own opinions and wisdom. They are the mouthpieces and the conduits of God that he chooses to convey his message. And so as a result, we can't twist or read into scripture a meaning that isn't already there. For example, there are pastors in the world today who are very fixated on Psalm 91. Psalm 91 verses 9 to 13 says this, Because you have made the Lord, who is my refuge, even the Most High, your dwelling place, no evil shall befall you nor shall any plague come near your dwelling. For he shall give his angels charge over you to keep you in all your ways, and their hands shall bear you up, lest you dash your foot against a stone. You shall tread upon the lion and the cobra, and the young lion and the serpent you shall trample underfoot. And these pastors are concluding and teaching, if you're a Christian, you will not get the coronavirus. What are they doing? They're twisting and interpreting and reading into Scripture a meaning that isn't there. And you may have noticed, by the way, interestingly, that's the exact passage Satan used when he was speaking to Jesus in the wilderness. When Satan privately interpreted Scripture and twisted it to mean something God didn't intend it to mean. We have to be so 
careful when we're listening to people interpreting the Bible, especially when they're saying something new that we've never heard before or giving a new insight into the Bible. You might hear something and say, oh, that's amazing. I've never heard that before. There's probably a reason you've never heard that before. It's likely a faulty interpretation of what God was intending to say with that passage. Yeah, but the guy on YouTube used Bible verses to say it. Well, there's probably a reason he's on YouTube and not a qualified pastor. It might sound good. It might sound convincing. It might sound biblical, but it might not be what God was intending to convey to us. This is God's message with God's meaning. How do we know that? How can we trust that that is the case? Because, verse 21, prophecy never came by the will of man. It was not the will, the ingenuity, the innovation of human beings that gave us prophecies, and indeed the whole Bible. The Bible doesn't contain some belief system that some ancient guys thought at once when they were trying to work out where the universe came from and what God is like. So then where did the entire Bible come from? Holy men of God spoke as they were moved by the Holy Spirit. Remember back when the Israelites had been led out of the captivity of the Egyptians through the Red Sea by Moses and they were building the tabernacle. We read something in Exodus that I find very helpful in understanding how God works through the actions of people. You might want to turn there. Exodus 31, verses 1 to 6. Exodus chapter 31, verses 1 to 6. Then God spoke to Moses, saying, See, I have called by name Bezalel, the son of Uri, the son of Hur, of the tribe of Judah. I have filled him with the Spirit of God in wisdom, in understanding, in knowledge, in all manner of workmanship, to design artistic works, to work in gold, in silver, in bronze, in cutting jewels for setting, in carving wood, and to work in all manner of workmanship. And I, indeed I, have appointed him with Aholiab, the son of Ahimashak, the tribe of Dan. And I have put wisdom in the heart of all the gifted artisans, that they may make all that I've commanded you. What do we see here? We see God gives wisdom and understanding to the builders and artists to use the skills that they have to design and make the tabernacle just how God wanted it to be. And I think that's really helpful in understanding how God has created his word for us. He's given wisdom and understanding to the different writers of the Old and the New Testaments to use their skills and their personalities to author the books of the Bible just how he wanted them to be so that you and I 
could learn everything we need to know. And what did we see at the very start of this series? Verse 4 of 2 Peter 1, God has given us all things that pertain to life and godliness. Everything this book contains is everything you need. There aren't things that aren't in the book that you need to know. If there are things the book doesn't contain, you don't need to know them. You can be completely at ease when you come to this book, knowing that this is the truth from Jesus Christ who has come, who has been seen by hundreds of witnesses, which is from God himself, which is complete and eternal and unchangeable and reliable. What a relief that is in this world of chaos and confusion and doubts and lies. This book is from a totally different realm, as it were. It's God's own word. And as Jesus prayed himself in John 17, for those who would trust in him one day, that's all of us, sanctify them by your truth. Your word is truth. So why is it that you are not a Muslim? Why is it that you are not a Mormon? Why is it that you are not a humanist? Why is it that you follow Peter's message as opposed to any other message? Why does what Peter is saying here in this simple first century letter hold more weight and more meaning and more truth than any other message that will ever exist? It's because the message of the Bible is the one trustworthy message, the one light-giving message, and the one divine message which you must heed. So where does this passage say that you are right now? You're in a dark place, a sinful world surrounded by futile, hopeless and godless messages, but what does this passage say will happen one day? The day will dawn. This world will be swallowed up in the light of heaven when we all see, those of us who've trusted in Christ, the glory and majesty of him. And so until that day comes, what must we do? Heed the light that we've been given. Hold onto this light that we've been given and fully hope in Christ's message. Let's pray. Father in heaven, how great it is that you've given us your word. Everything that we could ever need, everything we need to know for our lives, everything we need to know to be godly is contained in this book. How privileged we are that we have it in our hands, that we can read it freely and willingly and, and joyfully. Father, we pray that you would instill in our hearts how important it is to heed the message of your word. Help us to not simply hear and read the words and then lay them to one side. Help us to actively, by the help of your spirit working in us 
seek to put these words deep in our hearts. Help us to conform ourselves to what we read. And we thank you that we have such a reliable foundation for our lives. I pray that we would learn to trust all of your promises, all of your words, all of your instructions, all of your commands, all of your warnings, more and more. Help us be confident that this alone is light. And help us rejoice that this is from you and we don't have to turn anywhere else. And we pray that we would have that great joy of just as Peter saw your glory and majesty that one day when that day dawns finally that we would be counted among those who've been redeemed and forgiven and adopted and we would stand before you not in fear of your great holiness but that you would say arise do not fear for I have paid all of your debt I have forgiven you and given you this light and now come into my kingdom. I pray that that would be true of all of us. Father, by your spirit, would you help and guide us this week to read and meditate on your word. We need your help so much, Father. I pray that you would give us the strength that we need. We thank you and pray in Jesus' name. Amen.